1: tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card with 24 seven us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yes Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Shout out to our super producer, Casey Pagram. Shout out to our super producer, the one and only Max Williams. And uh, Noel, shout out to you, man. It's uh, we, we both had some weird weekends. hoo
0: Do you know what that is? Is that, is that a thing that is, is that like a military thing? Or is that just something that uh, Al Pacino says in uh, Scent of a Woman?
1: Uh, I've always associated it with the military, but that may be due to my upbringing. Got it. I don't know
0: why uh, I said that just now. It's just for some reason, every time I'm on a show and someone else does the intro, I just always feel compelled to chime in with Hua. And I never do it but I decided to do it today. I decided to indulge myself this time. I'm Noel, by the way. We're not talking about the military today. Well, we, I mean, it might enter in. We're going to talk about military communications and that kind of technology, but we're talking about uh, natural phenomena, something kind of in the realm of things we might discuss on another show. We do stuff they don't want you to know.
1: Yeah, and if you were to ask me, hey, Ben Boland, since I haven't introduced myself yet, uh, what's the deal with the sun? Well, I would say it depends upon your perspective. The sun is both the giver of life to everything from us doing the show, you listening today and the dog who is apparently a big fan of ours barking in the background. But the sun is also <laughs> a source of great potential danger we know that at some point the sun will consume this planet but it's a it's a long way away hopefully the problem is that the sun is not content like some Lovecraftian monster to just slumber away until the end of days. No, the sun is alive in its own way. It's very active. And as you said, Noel, on our other shows, Stuff They Don't Want You To Know, we've talked at length about some of the perhaps unexpected dangers that the sun can pose. Uh, Everything from You know, some as small as sunburn to a CME or coronal mass ejection. And today's episode is about a coronal mass ejection, a disaster from the sun. It's something we know today as the Carrington event of 1859. Noel, uh, you want to set the stage for us, man? I sure do, Ben.
0: So in the morning, the wee hours of September 1st, 1859, a gentleman by the name of Richard Harrington, who you could describe as sort of a hobbyist, uh, an astronomer hobbyist, he noticed and observed and sketched a, a kind of bizarre looking cluster of sunspots. It was an area in the sky that basically erupted and created this bright flash that generated a ton of energy that you know came from the sun. And it creates this magnetic field that is then released and shot billions of tons of sun material, star stuff, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, towards the earth essentially he looks at all of this and what that is that that he were describing and that he was seeing and describing uh, in his sketches was a solar flare and then following that solar flare you get what you described ben something called a coronal mass ejection that actually hit the earth a mere 17 hours later and created essentially what you would call a geomagnetic storm of such intensity that it would be felt across the entire planet in multiple ways.
1: Yeah, that's true. And when we say star stuff here, we're not too far off. We're taking only a tiny bit of stylistic license. CME, or coronal mass ejection, can eject billions of tons of what is technically known as coronal material and carry along with it an embedded magnetic field This is where things get pretty dicey. Later that night, after Carrington has witnessed this, telegraph communications across the planet start to fail. They stutter out, and then they go dark. And people started reporting, again, all across the world, sparks flying from telegraph machines. Operators were getting electric shocks. Papers were setting on fire, and these Auroras, colorful auroras, illuminated the nighttime sky. It looked beautiful, mm. but it, they, they were incredibly bright. Birds thought it was daytime. The day birds began their morning chirping, People who went to work in the morning started their daily chores because they thought the sun had come up. It's the opposite of our earlier episode when people thought the day had ended, if you'll, you'll remember that one, right, which was probably a volcanic explosion. Oh, no, it was probably a forest fire. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And some some folks, just like in our forest fire situation, were certain that the end of the world, was at hand, and it was Carrington who knew the truth. This would later come to be recognized as a solar flare with the energy of get this 10 billion atomic bombs. Well, and that it's insane to
0: hear that, right? But obviously, it had time to dissipate. You know, I mean, the fact that the sun is how many miles away in space is the sun, Ben? I'm bad at space math, I'm bad at directions in general, but uh. Uh, in particular, space directions.
1: The sun is about, uh, let's see, we'll use the U.S. system. It's about 94.345 million miles from Earth. And that distance, if you measure things in space terms, if you Mm -hmm. had a little space ruler, you would call that distance one astronomical unit or AU. Mm -hmm. Or 50,000 parsecs. No,
0: no. That's not a thing. That's a star, star Wars thing that I think doesn't even make sense. Even like Star Wars buffs, like say parsecs is not a measure of speed or something like that. I don't know. You,
1: star Wars nerds out there, correct me. Oh, you know what I, I should point out too for any astrophysicist or astronomers in the crowd, the sun is currently, as we record, 94.345 million miles away. But we uh, here on Earth we get closer and further at different times. So the average is something more like 92,955,807 miles. Totally. So
0: I'm sorry, I got derailed there for a second. My point is 10 billion atomic bombs worth of energy dissipating over millions of miles and still having such a massive impact on people's day-to-day lives all over the world.
1: That really speaks
0: something to the, uh, the power of the sun.
1: Mm-hmm. It's true. And we also have to consider there's a bit of a lottery here. It's a little bit of gambling because Earth happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or in the right place at the right time. If you're a fan of uh, if you're a fan of solar disasters, the big question, though, comes down to how Richard Carrington figured this out. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car?
0: Well, yeah. Um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah. I, I just remember. It was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I mm. was in Mad Max or something, you know?
1: I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville's And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
1: See Mint Mobile for details. He was a gentleman of means. He was a man of leisure, and he didn't need to get up every day and schlep for his daily bread like so many other people during this time. Since he had so much free time and since he did have the financial means to support his curiosities, he got really into studying what was called natural philosophy. And in natural philosophy, he focused on the field of astronomy. He didn't look at the night sky so much, though, the way so many other astronomers did. Instead, he studied the sun. And in his studies, uh, he would monitor changes on the solar surface as best he could tell, and he would try to make correlations and predictions based on the previous data he had obtained. And that's why he knew something was up, something was irregular Mm. uh, in that early morning on September 1st. Yeah,
0: it makes sense, doesn't it, Ben, given, you know, the availability of technology in the late 1800s that you would study, like, if you were into stars, you would study the, like,
1: closest one to you. Yeah, it's kind of weird that other people hadn't, Mm. (laughs) at least to this degree, So here's what he did. This is how well off he is. He's got a country estate outside of London. His estate has a private observatory. Because of course it does. Yeah. This is the kind of guy who might have had a garden hermit. You know, that's how well off he is. Oh, yeah. So he has a shutter over his dome and he cranks it open slowly. He looks at the clear blue sky in front of him. He takes his telescope points it toward the sun. It's a brass telescope. And as he's looking at the sun, he notices this cluster of enormous dark spots that we mentioned earlier. They're kind of like freckles or yeah. moles, if you have any of those. Maybe it's a dumb question, Ben, but aren't you like not supposed to look directly into the sun,
0: let alone with the giant
1: magnifying instrument? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not the best move typically, to look at the sun with the unaided eye. And it's especially damaging during an eclipse, which is why you need to wear special spectacles. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless... This was Carrington's bag and he looked at the sun
0: and like you said, Ben, he saw these kind of eruptions coming from those clusters that you described, those sunspots. And this was something he did every day, but today was a little bit different. At 11, 18 a.m. by local time, he could really see change happening in these sunspots that he he was used to kind of observing that moved across the entire face of the sunspot and then gradually faded out and then disappeared. So honestly, the Biggest factor in Carrington's favor was timing, right? He literally happened to see the event that led to the event, right? The, the mm-hmm. uppercase, all caps, event that we're going to describe shortly. He immediately thought maybe something was up with his telescope, uh, that something was, was damaged or broken. Um, and after, you know, taking a look and, and seeing what was going on with it, he found it to be in perfect working condition uh, and then realized that he had seen something very special, and particularly unusual
1: right and being a fledgling scientist he at least knew that he needed confirmation so it wasn't just a matter of uh, he said sunset said situation mm-hmm. so he ran out to <laughs> grab someone possibly in my head his nearby garden gnome and yeah. said here come look at this telescope with yeah. the, look here, sit at on the, these sit on these phone books and, and take a look through this telescope And look at, oh, yes, garden Hermit. That's a good correction. And so uh, he said, yes, my hermit, come, come from your meditations and stare through my brass telescope for the sun is misbehaving. But when he got whomever it was there to be a second witness, he felt like a real dunderhead because the spots had already, quote, much changed and enfeebled all in all. The thing he saw around eleven eighteen that morning was an event that lasted less than five minutes. But during those five minutes, gigatons, according to Hackaday.com, of charged particles were blasted from the surface of the sun, and they rode the sun's magnetic flux so that within about 17 to 18 hours, they would start hitting planet Earth. Earth. Mm -hmm. And to understand why Carrington was somewhat unique or somewhat distinct in noticing this, we have to talk a little bit about the concept of solar science. If we're being charitable, we can say modern solar science is in its infancy in 1859. And the reason he was able to not damage his eyes is because his telescope was... Well, it was crude by today's standards, of course, but it projected an image onto a white card. And that was how he was able to avoid a lot of eye damage. If you look at the sun through a telescope without protection now, it can damage your eyes. So be very careful. He wasn't the only person studying the sun. Other astronomers had begun to sort of ferret out its secrets, and they discovered, perhaps most importantly, that the sun appeared to have a cycle the number of sunspots and their locations on the sun's face kind of occurred in a pattern. And then they knew that they also pieced together this stuff. It's kind of like a, a mystery that they're investigating because they could say, okay, we know these sunspots seem to happen on this rough cycle. And then we know that when these sunspots occur, we can see stuff happen on Earth. We can see stuff like the aurora borealis or the aurora australis. and we know that there's a clear association between solar activity and the magnetic field that surrounds our planets. Mm -hmm. And even at this time, this is so fascinating, even at this time, how impressive is this? Some solar observatories had magnetometers, so they could record changes on Earth and then even more closely correlate them to solar activity. That is so cool. And just really
0: quickly, just to let's, let's talk a, a little bit about what uh, this coronal mass ejection is. Again, I picture in my mind when I hear this, you know, eruption of material from the sun, I picture it more like the sun is shooting fireballs at Earth and it's going to land, you know, and annihilate us like uh, the meteor in, you know, um, what's that movie called with Bruce Willis? Where the Armageddon, you know, Armageddon, that's the one. But it literally is just, you know, these electromagnetic pulses that are super powerful kind of along the lines of a man-made version called an EMP that can be deployed to disrupt communications. It's like literally like a very powerful electromagnet that can send out these pulses. I think you've seen it in like heist movies. Maybe it was in Ocean's Eleven where they use it to like shut down Vegas uh, Mm -hmm. for a brief moment so they can like you know, do their heisty dirty work. But this is essentially the same concept and then these things disrupt electrical fields, um, which is is what we're going to get to. Uh, But you're right, Ben, the technology of the time is a lot more impressive than I would have thought. I mean, it is practically 1900. And studying of the sun, you know, obviously has gone back as far as like people looked at the sun and were like, what's that? But you have like Copernicus, for example, who studied the sun in the 1500s and developed this, uh, you know, heliocentric view of the universe, which obviously was proved to be incorrect. Uh, We know that the sun is not in fact the center of, of the universe, but it is the earth.
1: I love the idea of heliocentric view because it reminds me of some of the anti-science movements that have arisen at various times in human history Mm -hmm. where where they'll say, well, your science may be all well and good, but (laughs) it remains my view that the universe is heliocentric. Exactly. No, it's totally true. So we've got, you're making a great point here. We also have to point out that this is something a lot of, average people would not have been aware of. Say, your average telegraph operator. They probably did not wake up anticipating the extent of just how bad their day would become. And the stuff that Carrington was lucky enough to see was only one of multiple outbursts that the sun would have over the next several days. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah. Um,
0: it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer.
1: Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I
0: just remember, it was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I mm. was in Mad Max or something, you
1: know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonneville's. Oh, Right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one, and that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant <laughs> I said El Camino and I meant Monte Carlo. I miss it so. Uh the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlo's and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running, but it it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers
0: What a naughty sun. I love mm-hmm. the idea of the sun having outbursts. outbursts, just like, you know, pitching a fit, having a tantrum, kicking and screaming.
1: It needs a nap. It you know, really it needs a nap.
0: It needs a snack. It does. <laughs> it, it's, it's always kind of on the sun, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a good point. But yeah, and other uh, solar observers, you know, even professional ones, had also reported these large numbers of sunspots beginning on August 28th of that year with a very strong aurora effect being seen at particularly low altitudes beginning at night. Mm -hmm. When we think of an aurora, we usually think of the two, the northern lights and the southern lights,
1: the aurora borealis and the aurora australis, right? Yep, and this suggested that at least one, probably more of these sunspots had created a solar flare and then a subsequent CME that was strong enough to fling plasma and coronal matter toward Earth sometime in the earlier two days. And they know this because the electromagnetic effects of a flare are visible to people on Earth about eight minutes after they occur, but the stuff that actually gets sort of out there. That's mm-hmm. the noise of a CME. <laughs> oh,
0: no, I, I, I had no doubt, Ben. Uh, that is absolutely accurate.
1: Right, because you, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, how can sound work in a vacuum? Don't don't test the sci-fi too much. It is literally... <laughs> and that stuff takes several days to travel those... Uh, let's just ballpark it. 93 million miles, 150 million kilometers between the sun and the earth. And those eruptions, still as big as they were, and they are big, they pale in comparison to that September 1st CME. That's right. Um, and as we've
0: been hinting at and teasing, the effects of this September 1st uh, coronal mass ejection or CME were reported just 18 hours after Carrington saw what he saw. So, again, it's absolute crazy perfect timing that he really did see the very genesis of what would ultimately become a disaster all over the planet. So, what this suggests was that the previous solar flares had already begun to clear the space between the Earth and the Sun so that that pl- could travel faster than its usual million miles per hour so potentially that means that the cme that was experienced on the night of september 2nd was actually released by an earlier unobserved flare because it appears to be this was like a very busy time for the sun the sun was just having back-to-back tantrums here um mm-hmm. so we start to see the effects
1: yes Yeah, again, it is quite possible that there was an earlier unobserved flare because it's tough to highlight just how lucky Carrington was to observe this directly while it was happening, or, you know, technically eight minutes after it happened Mm -hmm. for five minutes. Anyhow, no matter what the original culprit was, this arriving CME caused the kind of geomagnetic storm you would imagine occurring in a Hollywood blockbuster today. The Geostorm. Like yes, yeah. <laughs> the Earth's magnetosphere was shoved aside, like kicked down the stairs basically, and this allowed these charged particles to get into the atmosphere. They combined with gas molecules. That's what forms those uh, northern and southern lights. And... These lights spread much further than their usual range. You could see them in areas that were close to the tropics. People could read newspapers at midnight on the street. Uh, And as we said, some people and animals alike started their days too early. But these beautiful lights in the sky were just a backdrop. They were just a nice silver lining to a very dangerous cloud. The distortion of Earth's magnetic field eventually reached a point of collapse. And when that collapsing field released terawatts of energy back into Earth, people of the Victorian age were actually quite fortunate. They didn't have a ton of electrical infrastructure, so most of this current just kind of dissipated. Right. Except for the big communication system of the world at the time, the telegraph network.
0: Yeah, the telegraph network, which is, you know, a very rudimentary infrastructure of communication, which is essentially these poles connected together by wires that are amplified, I imagine. I'm I'm probably doing a very rudimentary job of explaining it, but there are essentially transformers or some kind of electrical boosting, you know, uh, equipment that um, causes those signals to be relayed from pole to pole, literally through wires, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is not a wireless system. And there's a lot of work that has gone into setting up the telegraph system. It was a hugely vital piece of of communication technology. You would get news, you would send private messages, you could do business much more quickly than you could by, say, sending a carriage Mm -hmm. or a messenger pigeon or a a good old-fashioned letter. Also, telegraph operators were aware that their system could be compromised by atmospheric activity like thunderstorms or the northern lights. Ben, this
0: would have been what would, be, would have been referred to as the wire, right? Sending things by wire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe at this stage, it would have been all through like Morse code, like taps. You know, you'd have like a device with a little button on it that you would tap the message into. And then it would be received on the other end where someone would translate it and then deliver it. Correct.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. The telegraph system did rely on Morse code, which is the telegraph was primarily used from the 1840s into the mid 20th century. And the reason Morse code was so useful is because you were coding pulses of electric current through those wires. So you weren't writing anything. You were doing dits and dashes and dots and, uh, it's it's funny because you can learn morse code pretty easily there's just a series of long and short pulses that represent numbers or letters but just like when you see somebody transcribing something in a courtroom watching somebody actually operate a telegraph is amazing they move so quickly it's it's insane. I'm just tipping my tipping my podcast hat to anybody who can do Morse code at that level of speed. They had known that there would be re- regional disturbances could affect the system, but no one had ever experienced a disturbance of this magnitude, a global disruption. And we're going to we're going to pause for a moment here. This is going to be part 1. Of our episode on the Carrington event, and trust us, folks, when we tell you, things get even crazier, don't they? know mm-hmm. like stuff they don't want you to know. Level crazy, like the part in the show where things get crazy. <laughs> yes, just so, just so. And uh, we want to thank you for coming with us on this on this bizarre uh, solar storm journey. We also want to thank, of course, our super producers Casey Pegrum and Max Williams, not to mention Alex Williams.
0: Yes, there is a relation who composed our theme. Jonathan Strickland, the Quister, gonna see him again real soon
1: if uh, if he has anything to say about it. Um, and Christopher Osiotis here in spirit. And of course, our good pals, Eve's Jeff Coat, and our own uh, mad solar scientist. If solar science was research, Gabe Lussier, Uh I'm excited for part two. Noel, what about you? You know, I'm always excited for a two-parter. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope let's hope that uh, all our electronics are still working when we get there. We'll see you next time, folks.